imagine a world where drones do all the work. Are you thinking about it? What's it look like? Robot butlers? Uh, toilets that wipe your hiney? Wait, I have one of those. I have a Japanese toilet seat. Have I ever told you this story? Hello, fine listeners of the pod, pod listeners. How are you? It's Todd. How's everything going? This is the Pre-Accident Investigation Podcast, and I'm the host of this event. And I was just talking about my fabulous Japanese toilet seat. So I don't know how much you're supposed to talk about toilet seats um, publicly, but we're this is friends. We're just friends. It's just the two of us, so we can talk about it. So I, I often have to go to Japan. And for a while, I went a bunch of times. I was on a little project you probably know. Um, and I thought, man, they've really got the toilet seat thing figured out. I mean, they get, it shoots water. It shoots air. It makes noise. It's heated. They vibrate. It's amazing, right? I mean, it's just amazing. And I thought, I really want one of these. And so I made a little pack that I was going to get one and bring it home. You, you can get them in the United States. I mean, back then, you probably couldn't. But now you can. The company that, that's really famous for them is, is Toto. T-O-T-O, Toto, the Toto Toilet Company. So, but, but back then I thought, well, I'm going to get one of these Japanese toilet seats. So I asked my host if we could go to a, a, a Japanese Home Depot, to a lumberyard. And little did I know that would be culturally the highlight of my entire, that was an incredible experience. Because um, I guess tourists don't really go to Japanese lumberyards because uh, I seem to be kind of the only guy gene in the room and quite impressed I was by how impressed other people were coming up and looking at me. And so we went down to the toilet seat aisle. And man, oh, man, Azilla, they had like 900. There's a whole row of, to, I mean, like an aisle of toilet seats. And they had they had fancy ones with remotes that you uh, that were wireless. And, and and I'd lose that or I'd switch. I'd be trying to switch the channels in my toilet seat. would be shooting water is what would happen. They had ones where the remotes mounted on the wall next to the toilet. And then they had kind of the classic kind that you see in all the hotels, which uh, – that has a little remote uh, beside it. So I bought one. And if, if I remember correctly, it wasn't even, I mean, it was expensive for a toilet seat, but it wasn't that expensive. And I came home and I had my little, my helper, my, my friend, Andreas, he helped me install it. Not that I can't install a toilet seat, but I had to drop electricity in because um, I needed electricity. So I got electricity and the plumbing actually, it, it, it uses the existing water in the toilet and we installed it, and it was amazing. There was only one part of the story that I'm missing, and that is when you buy the toilet seat in Japan, the instructions are in Japanese. They weren't in English. They were in Japanese. So the installation took a quite a long time, and not only did I have to use Andreas to drop the circuit in the bathroom behind the toilet, where we don't normally put them in the United States, but also to figure out all the crap that I couldn't figure out because there were a lot of parts and I didn't know what they did. But eventually, my friends, we made it to victory. Because you know what we were? We were workers working in a highly complex system with goal conflict, or in this case, language conflict. And we were trying hard as we could to be successful. And we made it. So we had all the right complexities managed and we had all the right capacities in place. And the end of the story is when you come to my house, certainly if you do nothing else, 
asked to go to the toilet. You'll be there a while, but it's kind of a good ride. I would say it's e-ticket quality in Disneyland. That's an old reference. That's a really old reference. This is the podcast for today. How are you doing? Everybody good? So I'm kind of excited about this podcast. So um, this, this podcast happened because I was in Wichita, Kansas for quite an adventure. So, you know, I went to Bluegrass, and Bluegrass was great. Rented a golf cart. We had an amazing time. Um, the golf cart makes it so much fun, although it's, I feel like I'm lazy. But it's kind of fun to zoom around the campgrounds and listen to people play. I heard great music. I heard two people <clears throat> that you guys ought to uh, look up. One is a guy named Billy Strings, not his real name. That is his stage name. He is amazing. His, he did the last set on the main stage in Winfield on Saturday night. He did uh, about 55 minutes, which is about, that's 10 minutes longer than it was supposed to be, but that's great. He started playing and never stopped. Didn't really even talk to the audience, but not in a bad way, kind of in a good way. But he started out with with what I would say is a nod to, to Carlos Santana, this really fat um, acoustic guitar played through uh, through kind of a Santana effect. He then rolled almost immediately into what I would also tell you was one of the better Grateful Dead covers I've ever heard in my life. And he played around, they kind of jam band around on that with his band. Then he moved into really kind of traditional bluegrass with a big dish of Almond Brothers at the end of it, which was a huge crowd pleaser. And then he ended up with um, Newgrass Revival. And so imagine this this kid, he's like 25 years old. He's an incredible, incredible guitar player, just kind of just going for it for 55 minutes in kind of the jam band, sort of fish, leftover salmon, Grateful Dead way, but going through all these different genres of music. It was it was completely worth it. I mean, it was it was it was an incredible, incredible experience. But the weekend was really nutty because um, I also had to record uh, some video to show to uh, a, a large organization's board of directors. And the large organization I was working with um, is Maersk in, in Denmark. And I couldn't get to Denmark because, um, well, there was a bunch of stuff. I was booked. I mean, I was just, I was booked. So they sent a video crew over from Denmark and we shot video in Wichita, Kansas, which I, I kind of thought would be disappointing to them. But in fact, um, they were the video crew was really excited about it because when they were finished with me, they were going to go get a giant tomahawk ribeye steak. And they'd already sort of figured it out and pre-looked at the menu. This is going to be a big deal. That was really exciting. But in the midst of all this, I, I, I hooked up with my cousin, um, Travis Brock. And you'll hear him. He's going to talk in this podcast. And he said, there's a, there's a guy, uh, his name's Terry Chappas. He really wants to meet you because he does a lot of the same kind of work you do. Um, he's, an, he's a naval aviator. He's a, he's a jet pilot. And he works a lot with high reliability and high-risk systems. So we, we met um, at a place that Travis sort of arranged called Arrow New Word Planes, spelled like P-L-A-I-N-S, like Arrow, you know, have, having to do with aviation and planes having to do with Kansas. And um, we sat and talked, and it was a really fun little conversation. And I thought I would share it with you, partially because Terry and I go through a little – struggle not 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 that we're mad at each other that's not the case at all 
But trying to figure out how technology fits into this safety differently uh, component was really an important part of uh, the discussion. Terry looked at it as, as a value add, which I think is probably a pretty good way to look at it. But I told him I didn't think it was a value add. I thought it was a capacity add. And, and I think they're very different. A value add saves you money. And by definition, if you use lots of technology, you can use fewer workers, right? I mean, that's sort of the point of that. But I actually think the technology he's talking about really supplements good workers in high-risk opportunities and gives them another vantage point, another way to look at the world or, or another way to look at the work or another way to look at the problem a better way to understand the blue line. Maybe that's a good way to say that. And that's the discussion we had. So let, let me not delay too much longer because I can go a long time on this. But this, my friends, I think is worth listening to. This is Terry Chappas talking about, in fact, technology and safety differently. Enjoy. I'm Terry Chappas. Um, I live in uh, Wichita, Kansas uh, with my family. Moved here about six years ago in 2012. Uh, I currently work as a consultant in the uh, oil and gas industry, and I also have a small business uh, doing some UAV work, so it's a startup company. Which is kind of why I begged you to be on the podcast, plied you with a beer at a nice brewery. What's the name of this brewery, Travis? Aeroplanes. Aeroplanes. I plied you with a beer, right? And so I'm tricking you into this. Talk to me about this private startup idea uh, and, and what you want to do with it. Because I actually think this is really interesting, especially for the people that listen to this podcast. Well, my focus right now is to use uh, – first of all, I started off with uh, doing energy conservation projects where I go into facilities and, uh, and I find ways to reduce electrical consumption, uh, reduce a kilowatt hour consumption for, uh, for the companies. All of this is commercial, industrial type work, not residential and uh, then I started looking at the, uh, the different sensors that are out there, like infrared sensors, and I got the idea of uh, putting them on drones and flying them externally and seeing the different types of heat signatures uh, emitting from the, from the facility and identifying where the heat losses are. Um, so that's my focus right now is using the, the drones and the sensors for um, energy, energy uh, surveillance uh, uh, for utilities, uh, for inspections, uh, surveys for in the oil and gas industry. So that's that's my main focus right now, energy. Are drones capable? I mean, talk to me about drone technology. It's changing a bunch, right? I mean, my experience is pretty, like the neighbor crashed one in my yard, so I got to see one up close when they came to get it. But that's pretty much my entire experience. What's going on there? So the technology is moving super fast. Uh, you know, I've, I'm a former Navy pilot. Uh, I retired. I flew F-18s, I flew fighters. Uh, back in the day, I retired in 2005. And technologies that were um, on the up and up back then, uh, you know, at the almost confidential classified level, today are proliferating throughout uh, industry, throughout commercial. Uh, and so we're seeing that. We're seeing the, the um, proliferation of, uh, of GPS and uh, how to use that in, in different ways. You can use uh, different technologies uh, um, like, like photogrammetry, to do some very high-resolution um, um, graphics of, of different facilities. So it's, it's moving pretty fast. Also, different types of sensors uh, that can, uh, you know, you can, like optical gas imagers, where you can uh, adjust the, uh, the, um, the camera to actually see 
the uh, a visual image of a toxic gas, of a volatile type gas. So those those are all new technologies that are uh, moving pretty fast in the in this space. Are companies accepting this? I mean, is this technology scary to them? Is it comforting to them? What kind of uh, what kind of acceptance are you getting when you go out and actually talk to people? Uh, it's kind of lukewarm. So why? I mean, the question is why, because it strikes me, the applications in safety are obvious. I mean, we could talk about them, but it strikes me that this is this really is, it's efficient, it's incredibly effective, it's incredibly accurate, it reduces risk, it increases productivity. I mean, there's tons of, I can't even really see a downside from a business case. Why would they be lukewarm? So that's the challenge right now, establishing the business case. You know, for me to do that, for a company like mine to do that, I need to know what their costs are now, uh, how they do their inspections, and what is that costing them. And once I have those numbers, or if I have, you know, if if, if a company is willing to share that with me, uh, then I can sit down and come up with a, the concept of operation, how utilizing UAVs and the Eucesners, we can save them time, money, increase their efficiencies, their productivity. So. That's the challenge right now is the, establishing the business case. And to do that, you got to know what the existing costs are. So tell me if I'm wrong. Do not hesitate. I've been wrong many times before. But my guess is the business case is not the most compelling argument for using this new technology. My guess is that the business case is boring and not terribly interesting to the senior leaders of an organization. Right? They know they spend a lot of money for inspection, and for the most part, when they inspect something, what they find is almost exactly what they think they're going to find. So they've kind of justified that expense. My guess is is that what you're really offering them is not something to save money, but something to increase their capacity. It increases their ability to do more, more things with, with more flexibility, with more capability than they've ever had before. Like I'm thinking about like a refinery. That's a great place to think because that's, I mean, refineries are these giant complex systems that are constantly eroding. I mean, that's what refineries do. What you're really giving them is an entirely new way to actually do work in the refinery. It doesn't replace traditional inspections. It actually creates an entirely new way to, at almost a macro level, at the, at the big level, to actually assess and understand their conditions right. from an entirely different vantage point. I mean, that's what I would think. And, and that is, you can use that with the senior leadership, and they understand, they get that. But when you get into the middle management to try to push this through, the, it's, uh, it's disruptive. You know, if you, if you talk about increased productivity, now that means there's less labor hours for their workforce and get a lot of pushback uh, from them. Um, so. Do you, so let me, let me pull the string on that a little more. Are, are they pushing back because they're afraid of the cost or are they pushing back because they're afraid of the technology? I think they're afraid of the technology. They don't want to be replaced or lose their employability or their number of hours that they work uh, and there's a lot of examples uh, for that so but but a lot of times the senior leadership is looking at their middle management and their workforce for their opinion and in and a lot of times in my opinion I think this new technology gets sabotaged 
I don't know if that's the right word, but it get it gets crushed because people don't want to see it uh, replace them. To me, that's a really interesting point you bring up because I don't see drones replacing inspections. I see drones making inspections more robust, bigger, better, um, more often. It, it doesn't it doesn't replace the person. It actually gives the person another set of tools, another vantage point, maybe to actually look differently at problems. And the secret is, at least I could be wrong on this, but the secret is not in what the drone finds, but in how the drone looks. Yes, you, you hit the nail on the head uh, there, Todd. The, so what we offer to try to like, you know, get in the door, we offer companies that we can go in there and train their people. We will train, we'll come in and train your people how to fly these things and what to look for and how to use them and do it safely help them pass the FAA standards uh, so they can do this type of work. And that seems to be the the way the, the, the right approach at this time. Are they hard to fly? And this is such an unfair question because you're, you <laughs> flew jets. But, like, for a moron, could a moron fly them? Uh, yes. I think uh, it, they can be flown fairly easily, especially with the technology day. Uh, but you still need to be cautious. You still need to p- take certain precautions and plan your job accordingly. But they are simple to fly. Yes. And I would say uh, the next step, the next evolution of this is that they'll fly autonomously. I mean, that's really where things change in the automation of, of the technologies that we're looking at is that, you know, you may start with proof of concept um, with, with, with people operating. Um, but, but really to get the most out of the technology to be on station when they need to be, uh, to fly at a much, just like uh, we're going to have driverless cars, the level of uh, capability and safety that can go in with a pre-approved routing GPS-controlled UAV, you reduce the chance of that human operator error. And again, it's, it's about now how do we handle the data? How do we handle the feedback um, that we're getting from the from the UAV, and I don't think we even quite yet understand that level of, you know, where that's going to put us in the future. Don't you think the definition of inspection is going to have to change? Where once inspections go out to find out where things are going wrong, the UAV, especially an autonomous UAV that you could schedule every, you know, twice a day or three times a day, it doesn't go out to find things going wrong. It actually goes out to ensure things are going right. Does that make sense, that difference? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in many of these cases, there are, you know, patterns of uh, technicians checking equipment, walking on site, walking walking or driving, you know, uh, miles in some cases where the UAV can do that job much faster, do the same, uh, bring back the same feedback that that operator brings uh, does not put a person in harm's way in many instances. So if there is something wrong, you know, that person doesn't enter a, a dangerous area. And and what it does is it redirects your workforce to go fix problems, go have a much higher, um, uh, I think, work uh, 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 feeling that they are contributing to what they're doing because they're solving problems versus I have a clipboard, I go out and look at some things, I check a box, and I come back the next day and do the same thing again. So let me try to rephrase this because I think I'm not doing a good job. So instead of going out and finding things that are going wrong, 
what I think you guys offer is you go out and ensure things are going right. So loss of containment, right, which is a bad, like if, let's go back to the refinery. I don't know why I'm picking refineries, but let's go back to the refinery. Loss of containment's bad, right? Traditionally, inspections would go out to find loss of containment. But in fact, what the drone can do with great regularity is not find loss of containment. It would find actually, it would ensure the presence of containment. Does that make sense? It's, it's, it, it, maybe it's too nuanced, but to me, it's the difference between trying to prevent bad things from happening and trying to ensure good things happen. And those, at least in my mind, seem very different. That preventing bad things from happening, kind of you sort of wait for something to fail and fix it. Ensuring good things are happening, that's when you go out and actually, you actually ask this question. What's happening when nothing bad's happening? And the only way you can answer that question is, is to go out and look at a system that's actually functioning well. And so you use the drone to ensure that the system's functioning well, not to see that if the system's functioning poorly. I mean, it would, it would see the system functioning poorly, but that in the, the ability to ensure things are working right seems more valuable operationally to me. I mean, you guys jump in and tell me yeah. than actually looking at a system that's going badly. So what, what we can do with drones is we can establish a, a, a baseline of what something's supposed to look like, you know, and then refresh that periodically, either monthly or quarterly or, you know, whatever the industry requirements or, or daily, depending on the industry requirements, and you can detect the, the differences of, of day-to-day or month-to-month and especially today with uh, machine learning capability, artificial intelligence, these things can can um, can be, uh, in my opinion, easily integrated into a uh, into a, a nice looking dashboard for people in the office to look and see what you know what what the changes are. But you look like a utility company, like a distribution that they're, they're running electricity across the Appalachians or you know someplace uh, really far, right? Right. It strikes me that you'd want to go out. And in sh- you'd want to go out and verify the system is good, not go out and try to find where the system is bad. Until the system was bad, then you'd want to look for it. And to me, that verification of normal operations, that component is really missing. That's really, it's really hard for operations persons. Like this, this question, I ask it all the time, what's happening when nothing bad's happening? A lot of times in oil and gas, they'll say, well, we get complacent or we got lucky. Well, that's not the answer. When nothing bad's happening on a drilling rig, a lot of people and a lot of systems are working really hard to ensure nothing fails. To me, what the UAV, what drones and this whole technology, this disruptive technology brings to the table, is not a way to discover failure. That's actually pretty easy to discover. It's a way to ensure normal, stable, reliable operations. What do you think? You're, you're, you're giving me the look. Well, I think it's, I think it's both. I mean, the, I the words – yeah, beer. I need another beer. The words that I use often are we can help you see what good looks like and we can help you see what, what bad looks like. We can teach the system what good looks like and what bad looks like. So I think it's mission dependent on what states you are expecting to see and then how you want to train the AI. So, so as you're – we, we don't, as humans, with our, our clipboards and, and kind of a, uh, a history and experience of being out on a site, um, we learn certain things through that apprenticeship. But the capacity to collect data 
and analyze that data and then see patterns. To me, the drones, along with many other kind of autonomous uh, or, or other technology, allows us to do predictive maintenance um, uh, and, and other kind of proactive steps that we, we just don't have capacity kind of in our human brain today to do. And so as you do every one of those flights and you're collecting information, where does that go? What do we do with that? And then how do we step that into the next level of predictive maintenance that we probably don't even do today in, in, a, in a poor way? We don't even know how to do that. And so I think that's the evolution that comes with that, too, of seeing what good looks like. How do we include that in a, in a more um, uh, proactive uh, maintenance or uh, accident avoiding type uh, technology. So that's pretty interesting because really what you're saying is we have the ability to build defenses and safeguards around confirmation bias. So what scares me the most about inspection protocols is I go out to look for what I think I'm going to see and as soon as I see what I think I'm going to see then I no longer have to look anymore because what I thought was going to happen was confirmed. So if I see a system working well then the system's working well. But in fact, really AI, sort of this, this autonomous machine learning theory, has the ability to sort of go beyond the normal confirmation bias and, and make it happen. Plus, it's pretty cool to fly drones around. I mean, how cool is that? It's very cool. Very cool. Okay, what's your coolest drone story? Oh, let's see. And it better involve nudity at some point. Okay, so I'm on a beach in Greece. Oh, we're going in the right place now. (laughs) So, uh, okay, there's no nudity involved in this one. But, uh, you know, I'm on this uh, pier, and uh, I'm with my son, and we're just playing around with this little portable drone that I have. I can throw in a backpack and travel. And uh, we're flying, and it's pretty windy, so I'm, like, walking along the pier as as I'm maneuvering the drone. And these drones today, they have a a, a return-to-home button. So, you know, I get to the end of the pier... And I hit, hey, let's press return to home. I press return to home, and the drone, instead of, like, landing where I think home is, it goes to the home that we initiated our walk, which was at the end of the other side of the pier. So it kind of set us off in a little bit of panic until we realized what was happening. And then we started running after the, the drone to, to cancel that command and bring it back. But anyway. So if people want to contact you and learn more about this, you're a really good resource for this, lots of background, and a really pretty solid background in operational safety. How do they get a hold of you? Um, my email is uh, terry, T-E-R-Y, at enelect.com. That's uh, E-N-E-L-E-C-T. That's, uh, that's the name of the company, Enelect. So terry at enelect.com. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the website is uh, enelectuas.com. You can also see what we, uh, what we have on the website. Again, that's E-N-E-L-E-C-T-U-A-S.com. That's uh, the website. Um, or call me. What do you think? What's the future hole? Final words. All right. Coming from Travis here. Well, you know, Terry's all over this UAV stuff, and it's been fun with an oil and gas experience to kind of see how we can collaborate and and bring those two things together. Um, after sitting here with Todd and, and understanding his experience, I think it's going to be uh, the sky's the limit. I think that UAVs today are like a smartphone was in 2006 or seven. We When we got them, we thought we'd kind of – you know, do maybe we could do video calls on top of our phone and texting, and now look at what we do and how we use this tool. I think that we don't even know how we're going to use these things, but I'm really excited about you know kind of collaborating and see how that goes in the future. 
So what think thee? Did that sound kind of like Shakespearean a little bit? I thought so. It might be. It's interesting to hear these guys who are right on the cutting edge of this technology uh, talk about other uses for it. But what I found interesting, and you tell me if I'm wrong, is that I think the way they were looking at it was kind of old view, um, traditional view. And I, what I thought happened in the conversation, you'll have to be the judge because you're the listener, is that I tried to shift them towards more of a new view, that uh, this technology doesn't replace and save money, although it may replace and save money. What this technology does is actually increase capacity, and it increases the amount of data and the ability to, for you to understand really the systems in which you work. This is a good tool to answer this question. What's happening when nothing bad's happening? And I think that alone is a reason enough to have this podcast. That's where I am on this. You can tell me if you're different. I don't know. I'm fine either way. That is today's podcast. Thanks for listening, you guys. If you're new to the podcast, welcome aboard. Uh, subscribe, rate us. That seems to draw listeners in. But uh, our numbers are pretty amazing. So, uh, uh, you know, a couple thousand of you listen every single day to this podcast, and that surprises and delights me. But what's more surprising and delighting is that I think we're making the world a better place. Get caught doing the right thing. Get caught trying to be good. That's what I say. Until then, my friends, have as much fun as you possibly can. Learn something new every single day. And for goodness sakes, be safe. <laughs>